Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern Bar Cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome to episode 262 of the Modern Bar Cart Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Koslick. Thanks for joining me for another interview episode where we track down the best and brightest minds in the spirits and cocktail world so that we can share their secrets with you. This time around, I'm joined by returning guest, Mark Sansom, content director for the world's 50 best bars, world's 50 best restaurants, and now world's 50 best hotels. He's a global citizen and promoter of the hospitality industry who has an eagle eye view on macro trends and a finger on the pulse of what's hot in various cities, countries, and regions. Last time around, our conversation focused on the many innovative ways that bars and restaurants grappled with COVID. And now, with the industry on the mend and travel back on the menu at nearly full capacity, we have our eyes trained on what it means to own and operate a hospitality venue in 2023. But before we dive in, let's take a quick pause so that you can make yourself a drink. This episode's featured cocktail is the Cardinale. To make it, you'll need one ounce or 30 mLs, of gin, one ounce or 30 mLs of Campari or another bitter Italian aperitivo, and one ounce or 30 mLs of dry vermouth. Combine these ingredients in a mixing glass with ice, stir until the contents are properly chilled and diluted, then strain into a rocks glass over a nice big cube, garnish with a citrus twist, and enjoy. Listen, I know we've been featuring a lot of Negroni riffs lately, but this one's important for a couple reasons. First, it's probably the most utilitarian Negroni variation for which very few people know the name. So next time you go to order a Negroni but sub the sweet for dry vermouth, just order a Cardinale. Then get worried that the bartender won't know it and explain the drink anyway. And second, this drink was invented at a hotel bar, which is extremely relevant for our conversation with Mark. As the story goes, the drink was originally invented by bartender Giovanni Raimondo at the Excelsior Hotel in Rome in 1950. That drink was a far cry from the one I just described, containing an ounce of gin, one half ounce of Moselle wine, which we can assume was the dry variety of German Riesling, as well as a third of an ounce of Campari. So it was a smaller affair and it was garnished with a long clove studded orange peel, which I don't know, I think that's kind of nice, good hotel flair. But for whatever reason, the gears of time have ground down all the unevenness from this cocktail recipe, and we're left with the current equal parts version instead. And you know what? I'm just fine with that. The Cardinale was a move I turned to long before I knew it had a name, mostly because I'm more enamored with dry vermouth than with sweet. And if it's something you haven't personally tried, I'd argue that you are long overdue. So, now that you're up to speed on perhaps the world's most underappreciated Negroni riff, let's turn our attention back to the interview. In this wide-ranging conversation with world's 50 best content director, Mark Sansom, some of the topics we discuss include 
The myriad ways in which entire segments of the hospitality industry have bounced back from the COVID crisis, as well as the talent and capital-related symptoms and side effects that linger on to this day. The return of international travel, which dovetails with the launch of the world's 50 best hotels. We dig into specifically how Mark's organization vets and reviews these venues and what it means to stay at a truly world-class hotel. As a sidecar to that, we also examine the historical and contemporary role of hotel bars and restaurants, not merely as providing the board to the hotel's room, but as engines of profit and innovation that can truly shine with proper investment and human resources. All of this, of course, leads us to the question of hospitality in a post-COVID world. What does it mean, and how are the best establishments pushing the envelope? We use the case study of Botanist Bar in Vancouver, winner of this year's Michter's Art of Hospitality Award, to illustrate how real hospitality can be an act of natural and cultural ambassadorship. Punctuated throughout the chat are the usual delightful tangents that educate and delight, including how Mark tracks the movements of bartenders and beverage directors across time and space, how to think of dehydrators, centrifuges, and rotavaps as bar infrastructure, what traditional Thai dish has Mark and me incredibly hot and bothered, and much, much more. One thing I always take away from my conversations with Mark is the need to zoom in and out aggressively if you want to understand the hospitality industry. The macro and the micro are often simultaneously at odds and hopelessly interdependent. The best guides... Those who traverse the warp and weft of food, drink, and hospitality are those who can show us the hidden patterns that interlace those tapestries, then pull them back to reveal the faces and names of those who bring the entire space to life. With that, I'm pleased to share with you this fascinating jam session on the current state of hospitality at some of the most impressive venues on the planet with World's 50 Best Content Director, Mark Sansom. Mark, welcome back to the podcast. Eric, thank you very much for having me back. It's an absolute joy. Yeah. So for those listeners who didn't happen to join for our first conversation, can you just reintroduce yourself? Who are you and what do you do? Uh, I am Mark Sansom and I am the uh, content director for the world's 50 best bars and uh, the just launched or recently launched now the world's 50 best hotels. Hmm. Brilliant. Brilliant. Well, I'm excited to learn about this new branch of your operation. And it seems like maybe later on in the conversation, we'll talk about that interesting intersection between the best bars and the best hotels. They seem, they seem like they go hand in hand occasionally, but just to put a pin in where our last conversation centered, it was about the pandemic. And we were talking about, you know, some of these amazing to-go initiatives that were really pushing the bar and hospitality industry forward during that time. And now, you know, it's it's a couple of years later, and we're looking at a very different bar and restaurant landscape. And certainly that translates to hotels. But can you just give me your big picture thoughts about where we stand now in the sort of premium hospitality landscape compared to where we did during our last conversation for sure yeah i mean i think as we as we spoke about last time uh, the west is is pushing really pushing um, in terms of its progress post pandemic i think in the states um, the bars that i'm speaking to and the hotels that i'm speaking to they're pretty much back 
but uh, back to sort of occupancy levels and sort of attendance levels as they were pre-pandemic. Certainly in Europe, we're experiencing much of the same. Uh, and I think the big snapshot from there is guest spend has generally gone up across uh, across Europe and across North America, similarly into Latin America. Um, I think if we're looking wider than that in Asia, it's um, still quite a long way behind the progress that we've made in the West. And that's purely down to travel lanes and, um, and, and further restraint. I mean, Hong Kong only recently pretty much fully reopened and Japan even, even later still. That was only early March since no visa was, re- so no visa was required. I think destinations like Australasia, I think Austra- Australia, I think people are taking a little bit longer to travel back from, from sort of us in the, in the West to, to Oceania. Um, but I think the, I mean, the top line story is Europe and the States are banging. I think our hospitality venues, our hotels are really in a, or heading into a purple patch. And it's been, um, it's been a, a big reset, as I think I'm sure you're hearing from, from your other, your other guests on and what you hear with the feedback from your listeners. But I think we're, we're in a really, really exciting time and a really, really exciting space for, for hospitality. So there's two topics that I'm curious to hear your thoughts on relative to that bounce back that you're referencing. Uh, both of these things are sort of like, I guess, were implemented during the pandemic uh, and or took place during the pandemic. So I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on two topics. You can pick which one you want to go at first. One of them would be just sort of like the venues that ended up having to shut down over the pandemic and the subsequent vacancies and opportunities for new life that sprung out of that. And the other would be like some of these physical affordances and innovations that popped up over the pandemic, like, for example, to go cocktails and food. And I, I'm thinking here in DC, we have loads and loads of outdoor seating, sort of like the, the the sidewalk seating that still exists and is still being utilized in really, really good ways following the pandemic. So I'm curious to hear about the creative destruction, the, the places that left and, and left room for new folks, and then also you know how people are using some of those lingering uh, innovations from you know, the actual times when we all had to mask up and socially distance. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's probably first worth saying that those those bars, restaurants, hospitality spaces, which managed to last the course of the pandemic and now probably just seeing and, and just really beginning to reap those awards, rewards. They're really, they're still servicing a lot of debt, particularly here in the UK and, and in Europe. But I think people are really starting to, to, to see light at the end of well, better than light at the end of the tunnel. They're, they're in that space where, where they're really going to be able to start thinking about profitability and getting back um, and getting back to some seriously healthy GP numbers. Um, in terms of spaces which have become available, um, again, in the, in the States and in Europe, um, those restaurant bar sites which were previous, which unfortunately were, were had to be left vacant, we're seeing far fewer in the UK now currently unoccupied. Lots of really exciting new um, new businesses coming up. I mean, what we're what we're seeing those restaurateurs and bartenders who are unfortunately laid off or lost their businesses are now trialing new things that are more appropriate of its of its time. I think what the pandemic did do. Lots of concepts and ideas which perhaps had run their course uh, and no, were no longer in, in tune with the zeitgeist that they might have been left by the wayside or people were less um, less interested in going back to those spaces. And essentially, it's, um, it's really brought about a lot of ingenuity in terms of really moving forward those cuisine types, looking to, to push different kind of concept bars 
and really looking um, looking to the future and what the the next generation of, of hospitality goer are really going to look for, as opposed to looking back, which perhaps we we as people in the media and bartenders, chefs themselves, were maybe a little bit guilty of doing. I don't know. We're but like I maintain that we're in a really exciting space. I love that, I, and you know, I think. During our first conversation, I was a little bit hesitant to allude to the notion of creative destruction mm. simply because so many people were and continue to experience a lot of pain from this calamity. I mean, you, you, you said just a moment ago that we have a lot of venues that still have existing debt from the pandemic. And, and so, you know, perhaps I'm still a little bit hesitant to use that notion creative destruction, but... You know, it's it's interesting to me. One of my favorite little historical moments in the the wine and spirits historical landscape is the phylloxera crisis that ended up killing off so many old world or old growth vines in uh, the late eighteen sort of like yeah the eighteen seventies era um, France and and other parts of Europe. And it's so interesting to me to look at the ripple effects that that had on so many other trends in Europe, of course, but also there are many, many ways in which that catastrophe that had a huge impact on entire supply chains and entire spirits verticals had resounding and echoing effects in the U S. And to me, I almost wish that I had a way to visualize like one of these big data sort of connections, nodes and lines mm -hmm. charts to be able to see of the bartenders and all of the teams that were operating in these high profile places that, as you mentioned, perhaps had run their course and then subsequently closed. Where did they all go? What are they doing now? What pop-ups are they running? Is is this the sort of thing that like that goes on in your brain? Is this the kind of work that you have to do as someone with your role? Yeah, I, I think you I think you've hit the hit the nail on the head. It's those it's that sort of trickle down. I mean you could almost see the 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 family tree of bartenders where I guess my my kind of um, expertise is, is probably best fit um, in in the hospitality sector. And yeah, bartenders who, who have unfortunately had to leave businesses, particularly, I think what people realize these days is that the bar industry is, is global. There's people traveling between the Netherlands and Mexico on a regular basis to head up bars. And then they might head over to Singapore. We've um, recently seen um, people, lots of people flooding to Dubai. Dubai um, and the UAE seems to be a really, really experimental, creative space. Um, beyond there being um, very little tax on personal income, which is obviously a very, very exciting time for people who some bartenders, bartenders lost their living entirely over the pandemic. So I don't think anyone would would throw criticism or throw any shade at anyone for trying to make a bit of money, earn a few dollars while they can. And I think Dubai is currently seen as a very exciting space to do that. So we're seeing lots of bartenders from all over the world, from Asia, from, from the States, from, from Europe, flooding there because they see it as a good place for creativity and with real opportunity to, to receive good backing from good investors in that in that region. And yeah, I, I think what we're what we'll see as, as we go on is just, uh, the bartenders which may have made friends uh, dovetail together at our 50 best events in Barcelona. I'm already seeing some 
some bar concepts come out from conversations that were had at our event last October, which was essentially the world back together for the first time. And, and those conversations are now bearing fruit. There's new bars opening in Tokyo, in, in Australia. Um, there's cocktail festivals happening all over the world. Um, maybe Sammy, currently Australasia's best bar based out of Sydney. They've just held the, the first ever Maybe Sammy cocktail festival in, in, um, in Australia. And the number of global bartenders that, that attended that festival was, was, was out of this world. They had some great support from, from brands to be able to do that. But some, obviously, the, the energy from uh, Stefano Catino and Martin Hudak, who kind of set that up, um, was just insane. And I guess closer to home for you and your listeners, in the States, we're seeing well New York City as, the, as a hotbed of, of, of amazing, amazing bars that it is. Some great new concepts coming out of there. And then further in south into North America, uh, Mexico City is just, I, I was there a couple of weeks ago on, on holiday, and that is just alive with fresh talent, excitement, as people are really looking into this post-pandemic age with um, a real, 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 real excitement and really sort of rose-tinted spectacles of what, what might well be to come. Well, I love that snapshot that you just provided of of the of the way that the sort of like the you know potentially during the pandemic down and out or disenfranchised bartenders have kind of squirted out and and migrated and cross pollinated into different markets and um, you know I I think I'd, I'd love to have a different conversation you know if you and I ever get a chance to to catch up over a drink I think one of the things I'd like to pick your brain on is you know the what you were describing there with the the event in Barcelona where you literally took part in or overheard conversations and you are now literally witnessing the deployment of resources and of creativity to to realize those things that's that's a a topic in its own right but i'm i'm really glad that you were game to to humor my my desire for some some of these big picture trends and to to kind of analyze them for us using what you know but what I'd love to kind of transition to next is, you know, you dropped a pretty big uh, announcement at the beginning of this chat in that you're launching the world's 50 best hotels. So kind of dovetailing with this conversation of things we weren't able to do really well during COVID, like talk about the world's 50 best hotels initiative, kind of give us the rundown of how that works relative to the bars and the restaurants. And then also maybe let's start talking about some of these brilliant hotel bars. Yeah, for sure, for sure. I mean, um, the World's 50 Best Hotels has been a long-term project for us. Uh, we've been thinking about it for the best part of a decade, probably. Essentially, the way we see it is we're already really strong in the, the restaurant space, which is our flagship brand, the World's 50 Best Restaurants. That started in 2002. We celebrated our 20th edition last year. Uh, the world's 50 best bars we launched in in 2009 so we're we're coming up to 14 15 years in existence there and for us um, launching the world's 50 best ho hotels essentially unites that hospitality circle and it brings everything together uh, and those three strands of hospitality bars restaurants and hotels they seem like natural bedfellows and we essentially at 50 best want to become a one-stop shop for the, the the knowledgeable consumer they can use our website and use our 50 best discovery um, search engine to be able to, to set up those itineraries for the for the world's best ever weekends. I mean, one of our one of our plans a long time in the future, we're looking sort of five, five, 10 years, maybe even maybe even longer down the line. But we want people to essentially use our facilities to be able to book 
the world's best bar or a one of the world's 50 best bars, then go straight into dinner at one of the world's 50 best restaurants and spend a night at one of the, um, the world's 50 best hotels. Um, that's the sort of long game with us. And we don't think we're, we're too far off that. And we, because we've had such good feedback from our consumers and, and the trade indeed and people who, who use our lists, it, it kind of seems like a natural expansion for us. In terms of actually setting up the voting for the world's 50 best hotels, it's been one thing that struck me while I've been selecting the Academy chairs, who are the, the people who select the voters in their, in their respective regions. One thing that's been um, really, really sort of, uh, sort of prescient in, in my mind when speaking to these people is that they've kind of been waiting for a genuinely egalitarian uh, hotels ranking. Um, at the moment, there's lots of magazines and publications which run either reader awards or they'll run um, awards based on where they see sponsorship um, with 50 Best. And the way we do it with, with bars and hotels is that there's, sorry, bars and restaurants, they don't pay anything to be part of the, these awards. Like the, the tickets are always free. Our revenue model, we don't shy away from it, is sponsorship of those awards. But we will never ask for direct funds from either restaurants, bars or hotels um, to attend our awards. And one of the one of the biggest pieces of feedback from hotels um, was that they're often asked tens or thousands of dollars, essentially, for a seat at that table. And that kind of takes away from the, the fairness aspect of what their um, of what those awards are genuinely trying to purport. So one of the, the key ideologies and the key identities of, of the world's 50 best hotels is to be completely fair and to be completely transparent from the off. And the feedback we're getting from hotels is that they're super excited about when we do announce the, the first ever list of the world's 50 best hotels in, in September, then that people are going to be super excited because they know that that is a genuine list. And the experts that we've compiled, of, of whom there are just under 600, which is huge for a launch academy split into nine different global regions, when that list is announced, it's um, people can trust it and they can know that it is an honest list and completely fair and egalitarian. So, yeah, that's something I've been interested in myself, because as I as I think about the job of reviewing a hotel and, and trying to assess what hotels really do rise above the rest, I mean, it seems on the one hand a little bit more straightforward in some ways than assessing a bar or a restaurant. Because the, I guess the service flow is 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 pretty minimal. You have the the one point of contact at, up front, and then you have the room, and then there may be some limited interaction with hotel staff beyond that. But generally, it's sort of the check in experience, the room itself, and most hotels at this point have been able to make the checkout experience relatively invisible. So that's to me, not even as much of a factor, but in some ways and in some potentially less tangible ways, I imagine it would be harder. So like as, as you kind of work with this new group of reviewers and people who are, you know, on the ground evaluating these hotels, you know, what are some of the qualities that you're really trying to get them to to dig into on behalf of, you know, the the people who are going to be reading these lists? I think you again you've hit the hit the nail on the head there, Eric. What we're what we're trying to do in exactly the same way we do with the world's 50 best restaurants and the world's 50 best bars. Um, we're trying to set as few parameters for um, our experts as possible. Now, we invest a hell of a lot of time and energy in making sure 
that the makeup of our, our voting academy is spot on. So, for example, for hotels, the way we're splitting it down, we've got um, 50% um, hotel journalists, hotel writers, um, and people who are uh, who essentially write books on hotels. Uh, 25% hoteliers themselves. Um, one thing that we found about founders, we were sort of um, uh, sort of market testing when we were looking at how we should build this academy, um, is that we, we've stuck with 25% because what we've found that many top-level hoteliers will tend to only travel to properties in their in their own group. Um, and essentially, they're one of our rules in the same way that it is for restaurants and bars, that if anyone has a financial involvement or a financial stake or are paid by a property, they're not allowed to vote for them, which rules out a lot of our hotelier voters, which is a shame. But we've still managed to, to get sort of 25% of the academy of those guys. And the other 25% is made up of um, what we're calling seasoned travellers. So people who are actually paying the rates and travelling in these wonderful hotel, super luxury properties, super. Uh, um, exclusive boutique properties all over the world. But the one thing that we felt very strongly when we're, um, when we're asking them to ca cast their votes is to simply consider the hotel experience. They have to have stayed there for one full night. Consider the hotel experience as a whole. And as you, as you quite rightly said, it's that the first contact point with either the concierge desk or reception, uh, that, that transition to the room, obviously the room itself and the amenities. But then also think about the the F&B experiences that are on show at that property, um, how you're made to feel as you're walking around as a guest, and then all the way up to the point um, the point of checkout, which, as you said, many hotels have now completely perfected. All are trying, that, trying it in a diff slightly different way, what we're starting to learn, but it's generally a point which can be quite easily um, easily perfected once that once the sort of the flow there is is understood. But what we're not asking for is for it to be a box checking exercise. So a hotel doesn't necessarily has to have to have a swimming pool. It doesn't even necessarily have to have a concierge desk. It it might not even necessarily have to have a, a statement bar or a statement restaurant. Um, it's just how that is and how appropriate that hotel and property is for its market. So we don't want it to be a box ticking exercise. We don't want it to become like the star system or as the AA system, which we have here in, in the UK. We want it to be purely up to how that voter is made to feel. And then um, again, in the same way we do with bars and restaurants, we simply ask for them to list their top seven hotel experiences of the past, the past two years. So we ask them to get, put their first one first second, second, third, third, all the way down to seven. And the number, their number one vote is attributed seven points. The number two is attributed six, third, five, and so on. And then simply, as we do with our restaurant and bars votes, we compute those votes, and then we'll be reporting the, uh, the winner to everyone in September. So yeah, we're trying to keep it simple, but with very, very clear guidance to our voters about what we want them to consider. That's brilliant. I love that you're borrowing uh, from the, I, I don't know if you, you're doing this intentionally, but from the U.S. cross-country uh, distance running system. Uh, I was an athlete when I was in, uh, in, in high school and that's exactly how, you know, the first seven, the first seven runners to finish on a team were the ones who scored the points. And it was exactly in that, you know, reverse rank ordered, um, assignment of, of value. So I, th I think that's, uh, that's a really smart way to go about kind of ranking these properties with all the, you know, th there's always the question of, of data, how it's collected, how it's, and then aggregated and and analyzed. And it seems like you've got a really nice balance there of 
granularity because you know it's, it's not like each like like you're casting single votes uh you know you, you've, you've got a little bit of you know kind of squishiness and surface area in the data there because of the different value of points uh, assigned based on the different rankings of the hotels by each person. So that gives you, yeah, just, just a little bit more granularity there to latch onto, which I love. Um, turning our attention, as you mentioned, to these hotel bars and restaurants, you know, it strikes me that the restaurants and the hotel and the bar all sort of grew up together. As you mentioned, we, what you're doing here is you're uniting the hospitality circle. This ostensibly started happening in, in Europe during the days following the French Revolution in the 1800s. And you know anybody who is interested in, in learning about that, I'd recommend starting with a book called The Physiology of Taste or Meditations on Transcendental Gastronomy by a uh, French author named Savarin. That's sort of right at the moment where cafes and hotels and travel between cities in Europe is becoming a thing. And then, of course, it evolves from there. But you know, like the notion of having the hotel bar or the hotel restaurant seems to be quite a traditional one. And it seems like there's a lot of very popular traditional style hotel bars right now. But it seems like there's also some pretty neat innovation going on. So I'm, I wonder if you might just give us some thoughts on hotel bars around the world relative to that traditional versus highly innovative dichotomy. Yeah, absolutely. I wasn't aware of that uh, text from Savarin. So thanks very much, Eric. I'll be, um, if you wouldn't mind sending it to me over afterwards, I'll certainly certainly pick yes. that up and have a read. Um, but what I'm certainly seeing is, is super interesting. And this is kind of global and across the board. Um, bar um, Hotels particularly are noticing that bars can be a lot more profitable than restaurants. Um, I think it's, it's no secret that operating a fine dining restaurant at a Michelin a starred level or, a fit, or particularly a 50 best level, the margins are very fine. They're, they're pretty thin at the top end due to myriad factors. Uh, everything from the number of staff that are required in a, in a, in a fine dining restaurant brigade, the cost of ingredients, uh, the cost of energy, and it, it's, it's all totting up. But I think what the savvy hotel groups are realizing is that the, the GP on a good hotel bar can be really, really solid. You can get some really sort of thick margins. And there's examples of this all over the world. And I think the, so the early adopters or the, or the first movers in the, in the modern sense, if you will, have been the, the Four Seasons group. And particularly in, in in Asia, where they're really starting to invest. So, for example, in last year's um, Asia's 50 Best Bars, um, the Four Seasons Group had four properties. It had uh, Charles H uh, in Seoul, South Korea. Um, it had uh, Bangkok Social Club um, in, in Bangkok, in the, the Bangkok outpost of the, the Four Seasons. Also Argo in the Hong Kong Four Seasons. Um, and, I, I, and yeah, there's Bar Trigona, which is in the Kuala Lumpur Four Seasons. Now, that's actually a record um, for 50 Best in terms of success of one hotel group. But it also goes to show how those that hotel group is investing in its people. They've got four of the, the very, very top bartenders in the world, not just Asia. They've got Philip Bischoff, who's at BKK Social Club. Um, you've got uh, Julian Brigger, who's just taken over at KL Four Seasons. Um, well, Lorenzo Antonori has just left the Hong Kong Four Seasons to start his own project, which he's announcing in a few months. And, and Keith Motsi, uh, originally from Zimbabwe via, via the UK, who was working at Charles H when it received that accolade, although he's just 
he's just moved north to Tokyo to open the, the, the Four Seasons bar there. Sorry, I realise that's that's quite a lot of, of, of granular granular detail, but it, it goes to show that when you invest in talent and you keep them in group, you can really look to do amazing things. And those bars, it's um, it's a matter of time before they really start they start hitting the high notes on the, on the global level. And it's um, it's super exciting. And if, if the Four Seasons is doing it, good sure as hell that other hotel groups in that caliber, in that category, won't be, won't be far behind. I love the granularity of that example because, because again, it shows the proof of concept for why you're doing this and why you're marrying these three different rating systems together. And like you say, again, I love that image of, of you know, uniting the hospitality circle because it makes so much sense. And, you know, it's, it also makes me think, you know, I recently had a great conversation uh, with another one of my UK friends, David T. Smith, and we were talking simply about the evolution of the Spanish gin tonica coming out of these super luxury restaurants in Basque country. Mm. And one of the very simple realizations that we had was like, oh, wait, like, this gin tonica was the result of chefs and like these world-class bars having all these amazing ingredients. And so they took something that is was just sort of a throwaway drink behind the bar and they brought that into the kitchen where they, because they had these world-class programs, could do something with it that no other style of bar could really do. And so it seems like what you're talking about with this marriage of, you know, really amazing hotels and then also investing in these great bar programs is they're saying like, listen, we can do stuff on the on the hotel and hospitality front that very few other venues in the world can do. Let's take that open a bar concept and see what aspects of our hospitality we can then almost turbocharge that bar with. Is that is that in any way hitting with you? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think a lot of it, Eric, comes down to comes down to the investment that these hotel groups are, are able to be able to put into those bars. You could argue that it's it's not it's not actually very fair that four seasons can go and throw I don't want to. I don't want to get the figure wrong, but it was in the. It was in the. It was in the millions for their refurbishment and their completely fresh fit out of, of Argo in the Hong Kong property. But also, um, in, in terms of the investment in people, they can go and cherry pick the world's best bartenders because they've got they've got leadership programs, management training, and the kind of the kind of infrastructure which I don't know a local dive bar just might not have. But then that also. That investment also extends into the kit. I mean, it's most of the most of the quality hotel bars these days. They will have a centrifuge. They will have a dehydrator. They will have a rotavap, and that's essentially even at the the cheapest level. You're looking at that's fifty grand's worth of fifty thousand dollars worth of kit. You, Mr. Mr. or Mrs. Dive Bar are not going to be able to invest in all that um, all that on on the on the regular. So yeah, I think a lot of it comes down to investment as well. I love that notion of infrastructure as well, because what it does is it takes all all of the very specific things that you were talking about. It takes centrifuges and dehydrators and rotavaps and blends them into right these 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 are what we who are interested in the study of philosophy would call tables and chairs. They're very concrete things, and in and of themselves, they're not all that special, but. By thinking of them as infrastructure and by by kind of pulling out that that learning that 
because these hotels have the money to spend on that physical type of infrastructure and because they're willing to invest in the people who then take those tables and chairs and make other things come out of them, that really is where the magic is. Because, you know, you and I both know that running a business at the end of the day is, you know, it's a set of things that need to get done. It's very unsexy. There's balance sheets. There's, you know, dollars and cents in bank accounts. But really what you are, you and I are here talking about is the magic. We're talking about the places that can take these bank accounts and these pieces of inert equipment and put a human next to them that makes them sing. And so I'm, I really like this notion of infrastructure because that does go back to that point I was making about the birth of travel between cities and hotels and restaurants popping up in the first place. So I, I love that notion of infrastructure. And I think it would be paired perfectly with a short chat about the notion of hospitality in the post-COVID landscape. Because, you know, as we've mentioned, things are kind of getting back up and getting cranking again. But people, as you mentioned before, are a little bit less content to, I, I guess, settle for concepts and for things that have been played out. So with that kind of restlessness, what are you seeing in terms of hospitality at the best venues these days? What are the moves and sort of the, I guess, the the programmatic ethoses that are really setting bars apart when it comes specifically to hospitality? Yeah, I think the easy answer to that is the big one in bars particularly is the food programs and menus that they're that they're running to accompany the the, the drinks which they've always they've always been very, very strong in. I think post pandemic people because you had to make so many reservations, you obviously couldn't you couldn't go on bar crawls, you couldn't just rock up and expect to get a get a table at your favorite bar. People were booking um, the seats and they were worried about moving on. You weren't gonna you weren't gonna leave that seat at the bar not to get one at the next one. Bars obviously rec recognised that, and to keep get people to stay for a considerable length of time, they needed to have some good food to go alongside the drinks program. So that's one of been the strongest move. I think that the, the number of chefs which are now collaborating with cocktail bars on the food menu and work it, looking to even those those chefs which have been unseated through the pandemic. Now they're just going straight in. Um, to the bars and then cooking for those bars and, and creating some really interesting menus. So to be honest, I'd say it's the food in bars, which has been the biggest success story post-pandemic for the consumer. Yeah, and, and one of the things that I've enjoyed about, you know, 50 Best is last time we were talking about the the whole whole new menu ratings that, that you had going on where you literally had bars submitting menus to, to see whose menu is the best. And, and you also have the Art of Hospitality Award. Um, so I, th I feel like since we're talking about hospitality, this might be a good time to, to kind of feature, you know, the, the latest the latest winner for, for this this go round. For sure. Yeah, time. we just um, last week, actually, we announced Botanist Bar um, in Vancouver, a wonderful bar in the in, speaking of hotels in the Pacific uh, Pacific Rim, Rim Fairmont Hotel uh, in Vancouver. They just picked up the North America's 50 Best Bars Mictors Art of Hospitality Award. Um, for doing some amazing things. What, one thing that really resonated with me about Jeff and Grant and the, the team there when, the, when, when we interviewed them in relation to the win is that they see theirs as a real responsibility. Um, they realize that the, the guests who come to their hotel, this may be their first interaction with indeed Vancouver and perhaps Canada as a whole. So what do you do? You go to the room, you drop your bags, you go down to, downstairs to the bar and they realize that the first encounter with hospitality that they have and the first 
drink that they have in Canada may well be theirs. So that responsibility they take very, very seriously and they couple the hospitality with great drinks and the kind of bar program we've just been discussing with a lab, with a centrifuge, a dehydrator, a rotive app, and they combine all of those with indigenous ingredients of the, of the Pacific Northwest and they create some amazing drinks and a really, really unique um, hospitality structure. So yeah, uh, Botanist Bar in Vancouver is is, is a very worthy winner of the, the second ever uh, Mixes Art of Hospitality Award for North America's 50 Best Bars. I really love the notion of ambassadorship yeah. as being in line with hospitality because, I mean, think about that. That is an idea that actually scales. It scales from the macro to the micro. You can think about it as being an ambassador for an entire nation, right? If you're on the Pacific Rim of Canada, you're right. You're probably receiving a good deal of travel, not just because Vancouver is this beautiful, picturesque place, but because I'm sure it's a, you know, it, it is a, a popular port of call for people entering from anywhere in Asia. And so you're right. You can certainly think about that as being an ambassador for the entire nation of Canada. And then as you look at the program, as you described, you see that ambassadorship kind of scaling down a little bit to more of a regional flair with their treatment of these beautiful ingredients that they have access to. But you can think about this also, which is why I love our conversations, as just a general takeaway for hospitality. Because if you think about yourself as an ambassador, well, I can when somebody knocks on my door, I can be the ambassador for my condo, right? <laughs> like when I open up that door, I can, I can choose how I'm going to interact with that person. And that's a, that's a very, very micro granular thing that probably doesn't mean a whole lot in the grand scheme. But when you think about it at these really interesting community levels, whether we're talking about a city or a region or even, you know, like a neighborhood, uh, you know, some of the best bars that I go to in DC, like when I'm thinking about where I'm going to be in the city on a given night out, yep. where I'm meeting up with friends, I'm thinking about that neighborhood and I'm thinking, okay, now I can go through my catalog in my mind of the places in that neighborhood that I know do the best job. And I think that's a type of ambassadorship that they have cultivated. And so I'm I just, I, Thank you for for bringing up the Michter's Art of Hospitality Award because I think the Botanist Bar is a, is a shining example. And um, I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that before we? Yeah, we I, I think you've again. You've, you're absolutely nailing it today. Well, you're, you're sort of dovetailing, <laughs> and we're simpatico in how we're how we're coming at this. Because imagine how empowering that is for every member of staff, from the the servers to the to the people in the cloakroom, to know that they are ambassadors for their city, for their country. Imagine the sense of pride that that gives them. And if the, if the management team sort of distill that and sort of devolve that down well to all layers of staff, I think that's going to really, really make a, a hospitality team really sing. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. One other topic, taking a slight left turn here that, I, that I'd love to talk about before we jump into the lightning round here is almost... Doesn't, it might seem potentially antithetical to the world's 50 best project, but I have a sense that it probably doesn't. And that is the notion of, you know, affordable luxury, because let's face it, not everyone who's going to be reading your materials is going to be able to afford going to these types of venues all the time. Obviously, 
you don't want to be, there's, there's no reason to be ashamed or abashed for targeting, you know, your, your publications toward the audience that can best and most frequently leverage them. But you have to know that you are in a many senses aspirational for a lot of folks. And I would, I would include myself in that category of consumers. So do you have any thoughts on this notion of affordable luxury or like another put differently, how would somebody who is maybe feeling a little bit intimidated by the prospect of affording a stay at one of these luxury hotels or getting a reservation at one of these high-end bars and restaurants, think about using the world's 50 best as a, a resource? No, absolutely. Um, and and to, to kick off that element, I, I very much see myself in that category as well, Eric. Um, I, I think if you can afford to eat in a 50 best restaurant, stay in a 50 best hotel, drink in a 50 best bar every night of the week, you're very, very lucky and you fall into the 001 percent of people out there in the world but i think that sense of aspirational luxury and affordable luxury is look you're either you're either really turned on by great hospitality experiences in restaurants bars or hotels or you're not then that's and that's a complete matter of taste but um when my when my wife and i when we're looking to go out somewhere we may well we may well target a particular date or a particular restaurant a few months down the line where we'll say right we want to go to this place and we'll save up a bit well maybe we won't go out for dinner or we won't get a we won't get a takeaway or a, a takeout that particular night just so we can focus our attention on that one great hospitality experience that we're that we're say we're saving up to and i think lots of people are viewing experiences like that at the moment and indeed seeing restaurants bars hotels as an experience a life-defining experience i remember many years ago i had a great conversation with um, a, a friend of mine. I, I was booking a, a holiday to Mallorca with my friends. He was he had just booked a reservation at the uh, at the Fat Duck, which was the, the world's the world's best restaurant in, in 1998 in uh, Bray, run by Heston Blumenthal. Um, while I was booking that, I was like, mate, mate, how can you how can you be spending all that money on a reservation at the, the Fat Duck? And he was like, look, I, I'm going to say the same about your week in, in Mallorca. Mallorca's beautiful, but he's going to remember that uh, meal that he had at the Fat Duck a lot longer than I'm going to. And I'm going to remember that that few day holiday with my friends in Mallorca. And that kind of resonated with me. And that's kind of stuck. And that's 20 years ago when I first got into I'm giving away my age now, 20 years ago when I first got into hospitality writing and thinking about hotels and restaurants and I think that's that's really key and it's only become more to the fore in particularly post pandemic are putting as people are putting such such value on those experiences and look not everyone can afford to go to 50 best restaurant or a 50 best bar but that's why we also created 50 best discovery uh, in 2019 and when we launched that it's kind of the more egalitarian face of 50 best so at the moment we've got 3,000 restaurants and bars on that platform. And that's everything from backstreet noodle bars in Tokyo um, to wonderful fine dining restaurants in the, in the Swiss Alps and, and indeed into, into the lovely parts of, of the States, Canada and, and Mexico. But what that really is meant to do is hit all sorts of touch points. We've got complete descriptions on that platform so you know what you can expect and it's got the price point you can expect to pay. But the one common denominator is that they've all been voted for by our experts. So, okay, if you're traveling to uh, Seville in Spain and you might not have a huge budget to spend or invest on your eating or drinking experience, you know that there's going to, if you, what, the money you are prepared to invest, it's going to be worth it if you've used 50 Best Discovery to, um, to base your booking. 
Brilliant, brilliant. Well, I'm, I'm glad that we had a moment to also just spend on that tool because, again, you know, different areas of the world are sort of recovering from the pandemic differently. And it's great to have a tool that is monitored, kept up to date, and not only, you know, sensitive of people's pocketbooks, but also, you know, something that's up to date and that really allows you to plan the type of travel experience that you want, which is certainly exactly what we'd expect at this point from the world's 50 best. Before we jump into the lightning round, is there anything we should be keeping our eyes out for as we kind of look forward to to the conclusion of 23 and uh, into 2024 here from the world's 50 best? Anything you're excited about? Yeah. Anything we should be paying attention to? Well, the, the big thing that I'm excited about at the moment is the announcement of North America's 50 best bars, which is on the on the 4th of July. Um, good one for, sorry, the, the 4th of May. Um, a good one for any Star Wars fans out there. Uh, and that's going to be revealed at um, 8.30 um, Eastern time. Uh, and that's going to be available to watch live um, in the, for any, everyone in the world on our YouTube channel at 50 Best Bars TV. So I would absolutely encourage everyone to, to tune into that because it's going to be a great night um, being held down in San Miguel de Allende in, uh, in Mexico. And it's going to be really good fun. So if you want to see the... The, the finest 50 bars in your continent, please do tune in and watch and get those reservations as they're announced on, on 4th of May. Brilliant, brilliant. Well, Mark, that's exciting. We will certainly share that out with all of our listeners. And, uh, you know, I'll, I I love San Miguel de Allende. I think even if, if, uh, if our listeners can't make it down there, it's certainly just worth pulling up some beautiful pictures. It's a beautiful, beautiful place. And I, I think, I think you picked a really smart, uh, smart place to, to, to host that event. This episode is brought to you by near country provisions. And I thought I'd take a moment to talk to you about one of my favorite times of the year, grilling season. To me, there's few things better than popping a couple sirloins or New York strips on the grill, and it's even better when I know that my beef is local, grass-fed, and sustainably raised by independent farmers. That's what Near Country Provisions is all about, and they do a heck of a lot more than just steaks, including wild-caught seafood, pasture-raised pork and chicken, and even add-ons like eggs, cheese, and soup bones. The variety of cuts available is staggering, and I've literally never experienced a subscription service with as many awesome customization options. Each month, I simply set my preferences and a beautifully curated selection of proteins arrives at my door on dry ice. If you live in the Mid-Atlantic, head on over to nearcountry.com and enter the code BARCART when you sign up for your subscription to receive two free pounds of bacon or ground beef in your first delivery. That's Barcart, B-A-R-C-A-R-T, all one word, at checkout. Becoming a Near Country subscriber is easily one of the biggest quality of life improvements I've made in the last several years, so I hope you'll give Near Country Provisions a shot and let me know what you think. Now, back to the show. Let's jump into a few quick lightning round questions. Brilliant. First one is a classic desert island scenario. You are stranded on a desert island for the rest of your life or with at least no prospect of rescue. You get to bring one bottle of straight spirits or wine or beer, and you get to bring one cocktail that will either be perpetually on tap magically or that you always have the ingredients to, to prepare yourself. So what's your <laughs> one bottle and what's your one cocktail? 
Oh, that, that's so tough. Um, presume, can I presume that there's going to be refrigeration facilities on the on the desert island? Uh, I, I think I think we can presume that. I think it's a magical. Yeah. Well, I think it would it would have to be it would have to be a bottle of uh, in terms of it would be a bottle of beer. It would be a probably a German pilsner. Um, which I find very refreshing, and I, I'm, again, I'm assuming that the the desert island is sunny, so that would be my uh, ice cold German pilsner to be had with sundown. Would be would be that, and in terms of the cocktail, it would have to be uh, a Negroni. I'd, I'd always like to have gin, gin, sweet vermouth, um, and Italian bitters uh, on hand at all times. Brilliant, brilliant. Uh, do you have any 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 recent Negroni experiences that really knocked your socks off? You know what I have? Um, I was in uh, Mexico City, actually, at a bar called Handshake Speakeasy, which is currently the, the number two bar in North America. And they did a brilliantly brilliant uh, coconut fat-washed um, Negroni, which was, which was just delicious. It wasn't overpowering. Um, it was just enough, uh, just enough coconut and maintained the bitterness and the sweetness that, um, that I think everyone loves with Negronis who likes Negronis. And, yeah, I think that was the best Negroni variation I've had recently for sure. Oh, thank you. I'm glad I asked that. Next question. Uh, you get to make a perfect mashup of two bars or restaurants that you visited in your life. And these can be, you know, world's 50 best or they can, they can be otherwise. Uh, but I'm, I'm curious because, you know, I, I, I think that the, the concept of a mashup is is potentially interesting in this space. So if you got to make a Frankenstein's monster of two venues, what would you choose and how would you mash these venues up? Oh, that's a brilliant question. I, I kind of wish I'd thought about it before. Uh, <laughs> before. Um, I absolutely adore sort of really spicy Thai food. Um, and I think my favorite one for that in London, um, where I live, is a restaurant called, called Kiln in, so in Soho. They really capture the... The, the spices of, of northern Thailand really, really nicely. So that would be the restaurant. And I guess the, the drinks to go with it, they would have to be um, super fresh and, and super sort of able to, to pair with that spice. And I'm trying to think which bar, would, which bar that I've been to would do that best. Um, there's a great bar in Athens called The Clumsies, where I was uh, back, in, back in November. And they've got some really sort of nice almost touching on tropical drinks and again they've gotten a, an, an Aegean Negroni which comes through comes through blue uh, and I think that I'd really like to see that kiln and um, the clumsies in Athens is a bit of a funky mashup. Mm, I love that I, lo I, I think that the Aegean or Mediterranean through the lens of tropical drinks is something that it could have some serious legs if, if more venues in, in the U S were, were able to pull that off. So I think that's a, that's a brilliant mashup and I'm right there with you on the spicy Thai food. Nice. Next question. Uh, what is an amenity that you wish more bars and restaurants would offer? Uh, this could be anything from the, the hot towel upon being seated to, to fresh flowers at the table. I'm, what, what's something that, you have experienced that just made you say, oh, this makes me feel really loved or welcome or cared for that you'd like to see at more venues? Yeah, I mean, it, that's again a brilliant question. Um, one thing that I, th I appreciate, not all bars and restaurants can do this, but I was in a, uh, I was in, I can't actually remember, where was it? 
I was in, that was actually in Athens as well. Um, and there was just really, really good, well, it wasn't actually even that, there was cologne available in the, in the bathroom. And there was also toothbrush and toothpaste available in the, in the bathroom as well. I mean, again, it's a lot to ask for hospitality venues to invest in that. But yeah, I think to, when you actually go to use the bathroom and you've got the option of perhaps either brushing your teeth or a single use mouthwash and some really nice cologne, you leave feeling as fresh as you did when you came in. I think there'd be some really nice touches. Sure. And I, I think that that is perfect with the notion of like, well, what would you do after you eat at home? Right. It's it's yeah. not exactly a leap to imagine that someone might want to do this. And so I, I, I love that. I love that. Uh, there's some venues out there that are embracing that and, and as yeah, p- potentially it seems a little bit extra, but yeah. sometimes it's that little bit extra that makes all the difference. Uh, so and I still remember it now, right? So of course it, the right. it worked. Uh, last question here. What is one dish or drink and perhaps we'll exclude the Negroni from this since we already know your, uh, your proclivity for that libation. What is one dish or drink that you'll always order if you see it on a menu, essentially, this is a guilty pleasure question. Yeah, well, I think the dish actually, because I've got Thai food on the brain now, I'm going to have to either cook it or order it tonight. It's it's a lard salad, which oh. is like a, which is like a minced pork salad with with mint and uh, super spicy chilies, lots of fish sauce, uh, garlic. I'm salivating thinking about it. Yeah, so it's lard um, on any sort of good good Thai restaurant is is the one thing that I'll, I will literally always order when I see it. And What's the best part about that? Of course, it's that it's generally one of the starters. So it's a it's a fairly low guilt, uh, guilty pleasure. And I'm right there with you, man. I, I I think that you and I could have a lot of fun if we uh, if if we set up uh, an evening of uh, of Thai food followed by some you know some some nice cooling uh, kind of digestive uh, Negronis here. So so if if you're ever oh, yeah. in DC, hit me up and 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 we'll do that. Likewise, if you're ever in London, let's do it. Mark, I always have a great time when we get the chance to catch up. I think that you have some amazing insights, and I'm almost jealous. I say almost because I can't imagine how much, how hard you work, but I, I'm almost jealous of the the amount of data that you have at your fingertips and, and the the type and the way to kind of pass that data through the filter of the human. Uh, to me, uh, that's the real value that I get when we talk is, is that, that, yes, you have this global view, but you're always so interested and so keen on those qualitative human aspects of these brilliant experiences that we have at our hospitality venues. So thank you for sharing that intersection of big picture global data and and the kind love that makes us cherish these very beautiful hospitality memories. And uh, obviously we'll have links on the show notes page to all of the 50 best resources that we mentioned, including 50 best discoveries. And uh, Mark, thank you so much for being a guest here once again on the Modern Bar Cart Podcast. No, it's an absolute, absolute pleasure as ever, Eric. I really, really appreciate our chats too. And yeah, look, looking forward to the next one already. So thank you very much. All right. Cheers, mate. Cheers, buddy. Bye-bye. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's two big things you can do for us here at Modern Bar Cart. One would be to tell your friends and family if you think they'd enjoy listening to us talk about cocktails. 
And if they don't download podcasts, they can always stream our episodes on their desktop directly from the show notes page at modernbarcart.com. The other thing you can do to help would be to head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. Five stars are great, but we're more interested in your feedback. And the beauty is the more reviews we have, the easier it will be for other folks out there to learn about our show. We're trying to start a cocktail revolution here. And by spreading the word, you're helping us fight the good fight. You can always reach us by emailing podcast at modernbarcart.com if you're looking for cocktail or bartending advice, or if you're a pro who would like to pull up a mic and be interviewed for all to hear. Also, definitely follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Modern Bar Cart for cocktail porn, recipes, and entertaining tips. And keep an eye out for new product releases and special offers, which are happening all the time. We love our listeners and we really enjoy giving you exclusive discounts and sneak peeks at our latest and greatest cocktail projects. This episode may be over, but for you, the mixological fun and adventures are just beginning. So remember folks, drink responsibly and experiment boldly. This episode was made possible with editing and sound design by Samantha Reed. Hospitality Insights, courtesy of World's 50 Best Content Director, Mark Sansom, and a little bit of interview magic by yours truly. This has been a Modern Bar Cart production, copyright 2023.